This weekend, it's Milton v. Howard. It's gonna be great. Blood will flow. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom to you, my friend. And deputy editor of Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com, Stephanie Butman. Good day. On the web and in the closet, Stephanie Butman. You have really taken over that closet. You've wallpapered it. You've lit it well. It's an amazing closet. I'm a little worried now that winter is here and I might actually need to put my coats somewhere where I can access them. Right now they're like shoved at the bottom of Ben's closet. But the other problem is that the people next door moved out. What used to happen was I could hear the girl making calls right across this wall. And now they've moved out and they're like redoing the apartment. So now what you'll hear sporadically throughout this episode and any interviews we record in the near future is like the work being done in that apartment. Now, were these the neighbors who delighted us frequently with uh, afternoon delights? These are neighbors who definitely really were into each other. (laughs) I will say things slowed down between them during the pandemic. They are fans of marijuana. Um, I, mm. that's sort of something that I've been made aware of, I think, the day we moved in. Um, like, But, like, afternoon times? I will say they also got a lot of McDonald's deliveries, which I didn't even realize McDonald's <laughs> delivered. It was just all decadence all the time. It was just fast food, sex, and weed. They were, did they work? Were they employees? At the like, beginning of the pandemic, there was, like, a lot of stomping around at 4 a.m. And I said to Ben, I was like, I think that maybe they're doctors. And they've been, like, coming back from their shifts. And... Ben actually Googled them. They are definitely not doctors. Like we can, like, because I said, I was like, this is so annoying, but what if they're first, you know, what if they are in deep in the pandemic? Turns out they were not. I think they would just get stoned and then wake up at 4 a.m. and like stomp around the apartment and then pass out. They are fifth responders, (laughs) as as they're called. John Mulaney had a funny thing. When he hosted SNL a few weeks ago, he said comedians are last responders. Speaking of funny, our Jews this week are freaking hilarious. Uh, two Jews, no Gentiles. We have Gilbert Gottfried, the legendary comedian and actor. Gottfried joins us to talk about his podcast and also about how to do comedy, especially obscene, offensive, profane comedy in an era that often doesn't have the patience for it. And Gavriel Savit, whose new book, The Way Back, has been nominated for a National Book Award. It is young adult Jewish fantasy lit. It was made for consumption by one Liel Leibowitz. The book is great. The book is is magical. Because Absolutely astonishing. Liel, what's going on in your world this week? The question is less what's going on in my world, Mark. The question is more what goes on in your world, because I learned a piece of news this week that made me feel very morose and sorry for you. I know how much it meant to you, and it broke my heart to see that Friendlies has filed for bankruptcy. It is true. Uh, Thank you. This is your childhood, Mark Oppenheimer. Thank you. It It has just died. Thank you for your compassion. Um, I'm actually wearing my Bay State West T-shirt. Uh, this was the downtown mall that uh, that has since failed, as all downtown malls have failed, where I used to go to Edwards Books uh, and also to uh, the baseball card shop uh, and the slice shop for a piece of za. And there was a Friendly's <laughs> there because in Springfield, there's a Friendly's everywhere. I mean, not anymore, but at its peak, you, you had a city of about 150,000 people. We probably had about nine friendlies within uh, the city limits. Wherever there wasn't a Papa Gino's or a D'Angelo's subs, there was, excuse me, D'Angelo's Grinders, it being Massachusetts, there was a friendlies. D'Angelo's Grinder is now a very successful app, by the way, but totally different. Grinder doesn't mean that in New England, all right? Grinder means, Grinder's a, a decent family sandwich, you perv. 
friendlies, of course, officially friendly for a long time, although they added the apostrophe S in the 80s when they realized everyone called it friendlies. That's amazing. Founded during the Great Depression by the Blake brothers, Press and Curtis Blake in Springfield, Massachusetts. They wanted to offer quality sandwiches at a family-friendly price for families who might be on relief uh, and not able to afford the expensive fancy schmancy sandwiches at the nearby less friendly restaurants. And it was where you would go for a fishmajig. It's where you'd go for a fribble. It's where you went to live a wholesome, clean, all-American uh, childhood. I will tell you, Mark, I, I have dined at, at a Friendly's on three separate occasions and only three. Uh, in three, I should say, different states. I'm guessing the states are Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania. And Connecticut, but yes. Connecticut, yeah, yeah. Like we we own New England and the Mid-Atlantic, or we once did. It was bought at for a time by the Hershey Corporation, which knows how to make chocolates, but does not know how to serve quality fried fish sandwiches followed up by Sundays in a healthy, safe, and low-cost environment. There's no place like friendly. Definitely two scoop what? For a real ice cream treat. No fast food place puts a smile on your face. Special, please. food and ice cream. Robert, I should say, by the way, did you grow up with friendlies in eastern Massachusetts? Oh, very much so. Hi, Robert Scaramucci. How are you taking the news? You know, when I was a kid, there was a friendlies like across the street from my martial arts studio. So I'd go from karate practice to the blockbuster and then over to friendlies. It is the one place where I've ever found a hair in my food, though. Uh, and it closed down a while ago and is now a dentist's office. So you can look through the ice cream takeout window and see people <laughs> cleaning teeth now. So take that as you will. But but yeah, it was, it was great. Mark, I want to know what it feels like, though, when, when a part of your childhood passes away. I want you to lean into the, to the <laughs> I mean, sorrow here. You know, what is my life? But the when you are a compulsively nostalgic human being like me, what is life but the slow death of your childhood? That's really all it is. It's like... As we know, world civilization peaked sometime around 1989 or 90 when I was getting a fribble and uh, listening to Billy Joel's The Bridge in my new Sony Discman. <laughs> and I was and, learning to walk. Yeah. Right. When Stephanie, Stephanie was learning to walk, Liel was falling off his surfboard in the Mediterranean. Look, there's a friendlies up the corner from the house where my parents live now, and it closed uh, a year or two ago. And it was still the place where you could go, and they had good ice cream, served at a good takeout window, or you could sit down. That was the thing that it mastered. was like, you could do the takeout side of things, but you could also have a nice vinyl booth where you were served by a family-friendly weight person. And I, this, it, no, it's hard. I mean, it, it really is Springfield, Massachusetts culture. See, people think we're all about basketball because basketball is founded there. But the truth is, we're not really a basketball hub. And, you know, we are the home of Webster's Dictionaries. Like, we've got other things going for us. But at the end of the day, if I meet someone else from Springfield, Mass, it's like, friendlies? Friendlies. Let me just interrupt. It's Josh. Producer Josh, you're waving your arms madly. What, what's up? I would go to friendlies twice a year without fail throughout my childhood because there was one right by the dentist. <laughs> And every time, I swear, we would get the trafiest possible thing you could get there, which was their clam chowder, which mm -hmm. was good. And then the clam strips, which were also oh, really wait, that good. that is an aggressive. And so twice a year, it was those two things and a fribble, man. Did you go to the dentist first and then go to Friendly's? Yeah, yeah. I mean, then that's just what we did. Well, that's how you do it, right? Yeah. It was the reward. Don't you leave the dentist, Stephanie, and then go eat junk is food? Is that a thing? You don't eat junk food after leaving the dentist, But is Stephanie? that a common thing that Friendly's are paired with dentist offices? I mean, that's now two people we've heard. To be fair, I've never heard of that. Josh, 
you're saying that makes me realize something else that was great about Friendly's was basically you described <laughs> the kind of meal that you would now get at like an Applebee's or a 99. It's what my brother calls the crappy American 1499 meal. But the thing is, Friendly's didn't charge you 1499 for that meal. Friendly's charged you 799. They actually priced it appropriately for the sort of tasty, salty mediocre American food they were giving you. It was before they tried to upscale it into a sort of fern bar, single scene, TGI Fridays. Worse food for better price. By the way, I have to say, I'm pretty impressed that we have not tried to do the like friendlies is Jewish thing. This is the first thing we've encountered. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, hello. Friendlies is not Jewish. No, no, no. I I am really there. Listen to me. No. This is precisely where I'm going with it. I will not listen I to have, you. Oh, I have the hot take. <laughs> okay. Here's my hot take. Because everything on earth needs to be Jewish, right? I think there's something particular about Jews, not just with nostalgia, but like having been like a very temple-centric religion and then having lost the temple. <laughs> I have no idea where he's going with no, this. No, listen, I think yeah. it really prepares us for these moments in which the things that we love and have meant everything to us as children disappear. sort of disappear. We're like, oh yeah, we like epigenetically know how to do it because that's what our people do, right? We, we used to worship at this place and now the place is gone and we mourn, but we know how to mourn these places because the temple was the friendlies of then for them. And here we are. Liel, I like your idea that maybe friendlies was a temple, in which case I only have to ask what is now that we're in diaspora and we've been dispersed, what is the rabbinic Judaism that keeps the spirit alive since we can no longer worship? It's Hurban So, So what you do now is you sit and you study the friendlies menu, Talmudically, right? And you really sort of remember the days when we ate at friendlies. I will just say the best thing about friendlies menu was for many years, the back of it, it was that laminated trifold menu. Robert, you're remembering this. The back of it told the story of the founding. It had a little line drawing of the Blake brothers. Now, wait. Bereshit Baraha Blake at a fishamajig. And here, here is the takeaway, right? Here's the really important thing. Ellie wants me to talk quieter. Okay. Here's the really important thing is that the Blake brothers actually gave the money that started the law school at Western New England College that hired my father in 1976. It was the. This is like S. that ate Presley. the cow that bit the goat. Yes. It was the S. Presley Blake law center at Western New England College. It's the law school in Western Massachusetts, which is why we moved to Springfield, Massachusetts. It was Friendly's money that brought us to Springfield. Wow. Amen, Sela. Mike. So this is truly your origin story. Dropped. And in fact, it had never occurred to me until just now how important Friendly's was to who I have become. Friendly's, I miss you. May may its memory be for a blessing. Um, I just am noticing the banging that's happening next door is not unfamiliar to the previous like noises that would come from that apartment. So it's like you guys can hear it now because it's not coming from the bedroom area, which abuts our bedroom. It's actually coming from like whatever this area is. Jews. Uh, Some of you know about the Proud Boys. They are the far-right organization that President Trump told to stand by or stand up or stand down or something. It was seen as kind of a dog whistle. Anyway, they didn't get pulled into any sort of political action, but one of their leaders is starting a sprinter group to try to even 
more anti-Semitic. He's worried that the Proud Boys are insufficiently racist and anti-Semitic, and he's trying to take them in a, in a new direction. Liel, do you, do you have the scoop on that one? Yeah, you know how I know that they're really uh, gentilic? Because he wanted to rename his new organization, not the Proud Boys, but the Proud Goys. What? To which every self-respecting Jew would say, it's spelled Goyim. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> everybody knows that. By the way, who uses the word goys? Like, other than like the biggest goyim on earth, right? How like, do they who even, even know knows or what cares that about word that word is? Goys, like right. a lot of Jews don't know what that, it's sort of like a semi-derogatory term that Jews use to describe Gentiles. Well, it literally just means nations. It's There's nothing inherently derogatory about it. It's used today in a way like, oh, that goy. Like, it's not... Mainly by neo-Nazis who refer yeah, to themselves as Yeah, but it's like, yeah, it's like why goyim? are neo-Nazis taking that word? Why are they... Like, it's weird. And even, you know, that thing that happened on the L.A. freeway where the signs came down saying, like, Jews control everything and it said, like, goyemtv.com. I actually, like, went to that website. But it's like, they've now taken a word that we used to describe them to just... It's like this bizarro reappropriation by the way, what's on goyimtv.com? Like Walker, Texas Ranger and Touched by an Angel? Like, yeah. It didn't load and it, um, like, I think, may have infected my computer with all sorts of things. Your theory, Stephanie, is they're actually reclaiming it. They're like reclaiming it the way gay people I mean, reclaim I don't like queer. It. The way some Jews have tried to reclaim Yid or Jap or what they are. They are reclaiming. They're taking goy away from us well, as a term. I don't really care so much about that. I'm more just like, it's this thing where neo-Nazis know so much about Judaism. And you're just like... You're calling yourself goys. That's like, that's so weird. You're so Jewish. You're so Jewish. <laughs> Neo-Nazis. Neo-Nazis. So Jewish. Very Jewish. The leader of this new sect said, as it says in Tractate Yevamot <laughs> of the Jerusalem Talmud, Jews will not replace us. Yeah, you're next thing they're going to know, they're going to be like, well, my favorite podcast is this Daf Yomi podcast called Take One, where they do really modern takes on all the Talmud pages hosted by this big Jew, Liel Leibowitz. As Rabbi Yossi said to Rabbi Eliezer, this is our country. That is the amazing thing about anti-Semites is they spend a lot of their time studying Jews. They are deep in. They, they're like, they, they know so much about Judaism. And it's always they like, oh in- yeah, oh, my mother was Jewish. And you're like, oh, you just hate your mom. It's not anything <laughs> we did. Um, Stephanie Butnick, as our Washington correspondent, uh, what's going on What's going on in the, in the waning days, in the last days of the Trump administration? There's a story from JTA <laughs> that says... Amid White House COVID-19 outbreak, Ivanka, Trump, and Jared Kushner pulled their three kids from a D.C. Jewish school. And so basically what happened was a few weeks before Election Day, Jared and Ivanka pulled their kids out of the Milton Gottesman Jewish Day School, where they had been since they came um, to D.C., and they started a different school, the Melvin J. Berman Hebrew Academy. So they went from like a Milton to a Melvin? <laughs> they went from Milton to Melvin. <laughs> from Milton Gottesman to Melvin Berman. And so basically, you know, they withdrew from the school and the school acknowledges it. But what they said, what a source close to the couple said was, you know, Milton wasn't going back to in-person schooling and Melvin was. So they said that they sort of pulled out to go to a more in-person school, as Jared has said publicly, like he wants, he thinks schools should be open. But... Like, people at the school are saying, no, what actually happened was that, you know, the parents at this school had to, like, sign on to this thing that basically says, like, we are going to be socially distanced. We are going to take these precautions as parents of children in the school. And after things like that Rose Garden ceremony for Amy Coney Barrett, parents were like, hey, that family is not complying with the dictates of this school. <laughs> anyway, so basically it sounds like they may have been pushed out of this school. They were 
asked this to is, leave Milton. This is part of their—it's it's actually called their protocols. That's what JTA calls it. I'm like, why are you using the word protocols? Like, why is why are we ever saying that word? Um, one of the sentences, families and students should avoid hosting or attending large gatherings where proper social distancing measures are not feasible. Basically, every line of this protocol is something that the Trump administration has broken. And Jared and Ivanka, by being present at all these things, have broken. So as parents at this school, like, they got pushed out by a bunch of Jews who were like, you, you guys, I saw what you did this weekend. <laughs> Right. I just want to say that it's pretty funny. You go to the Milton Gottesman website and the school is named for donor Milton Gottesman and it calls itself Milton. They've named themselves after Milt. On the website, it talks about like the virtues of a Milton education. When your child comes to Milton, there's a, it's it's as if my grandfather had endowed a school and they called it Walt. Literally, my grandpa, Milton Butnick. Yeah. <laughs> I'll keep talking about this. They've denied this, and they've said this is like idle gossip and speculation. They've said it's Lashon Hara. They will not be yeah. victimized <laughs> by this Lashon Hara. I'm starting a school that's called the Mark. My home school is <laughs> called Mark's. Mark's Place. It's called Schoolie McSchoolface is what it's called. <laughs> it's called Fishamajig. Yeah. Markamajig. And Robert, could you go on eBay right now and find me a friendly shirt, please? Jewish geography will get you everywhere. In our recent conversation with comedian Judy Gold, she mentioned that she was palsy-wowsy with Gilbert Gottfried, and we asked her to hook us up. Gilbert Gottfried is known for, well, once you hear his voice, you'll know what he's known for. He's in cult movies like Problem Child. He does a lot of voice acting, and we had a blast talking about his roles. I mean, I wasn't invited, but Liel and Stephanie had a blast. Take a listen. So, J. Crew, you know that when I'm passionate about something, I am really, really passionate about something. I am sitting here trying to find words to introduce one of my absolute favorite comedians of all time. I think one of the greatest comic minds we've ever had. Is, is that true, Gilbert Gottfried? Are you one of the great comic minds? Yes, yes, that's totally true. In fact, in fact, you underplayed it. <laughs> in fact, uh, you made it too modest. You know, I, I think I, I might have. And here's why. I listened to a lot of your stuff. I was listening to one of the things that you did. I think it was last year in the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. And you have this bit about being in a party with Jackie O. And you walk up to her and said, hey, do you remember where you were the night that? Uh, yeah, I said I was at a party and I Jackie Onassis was there. So I figured I'd play a little party game and help break the ice. So I went over and I said, do you remember where you were and what you were doing? And she just walked away. <laughs> Talk about conceited. <laughs> Our recent guest on the show, Judy Gold, who's a great friend of ours. We really, really love her. She she mentioned you in her interview when we were talking about like what we're able to say and what we're not able to say. And her argument, of course, is we should be able to say anything, particularly comedians, because comedy is such an important form of healing for all of us, particularly now. So can we ask you that like really, really tired question of like, can we do comedy during a pandemic? Like, can we do comedy during scary times? What do you say to that? Yeah, it's, it's just that nowadays there's the Internet and now everybody's got a say in the matter. And um, I feel like the Internet makes me sentimental for old time lynch mobs. <laughs> 
like the old-time lynch mobs actually had to put their shoes on, go out, get their hands dirty, deal with other people. Now you sit in your underwear on your couch with your phone. It's like way before the internet, whenever there was a tragedy, there'd usually be about 10 jokes that came out all at once. And it's like, I remember when the space shuttle exploded. There was, I forget the name of the woman astronaut. It was uh, McCullough, something McCullough. And they said, what were her last words? Um, what is this button for? <laughs> and uh, did you hear that she had two blue eyes? One blew this way, one blew that way. And in the same year is when they were having poison Tylenol that some people died from. And the other joke was the space shuttle and Tylenol. It's been a bad year for capsules. <laughs> these were jokes, everybody. You couldn't wait to tell your friends these jokes. And you wanted to rush to tell it because you were afraid they may hear them in the meantime. And that was it. And people all did that. Now it's like, oh, my God, how horrible. Are we witnessing the kind of end of comedy. Everyone is commenting. You're not supposed to say anything that's offensive. Everyone gets censored. You are, by the way, the first to get censored. You're the OG. You're the original person to get sort of punished for being funny. Yeah. It's very strange that jobs I've lost because I made a joke. And it's like, I feel like the headline should be comedian loses job because he told a joke. I think like Martians, you could tell that too. And they go, well, um, isn't that what you're supposed to do? But yeah, that's it. It's it's a ridiculous time. So, you know, you bring up the spaceship that exploded. I mean, that to me, those jokes were a way of helping people deal with just like the absolute horror of this machine that exploded in the sky, right? Like there was a real visceral purpose for that. It's kind of like at a funeral, the guy at the podium will start making jokes about the guy in the casket. You know, first it'll start out sentimental and then it'll say some embarrassing stories about and people will laugh. And another thing at funerals, you'll always see like one person will lean into the other and whisper something and the other one will cover his <laughs> mouth and go, no, 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 stop it, stop it, stop it. And it's like, should they be punished for that? No, that's their way of dealing with it. Well, that's almost how... We remember people, right? We don't remember the, like, eulogized version on stage. We remember, like, the funny little things that really colored their personality. Yeah. It's like the um, things they say at the podium. That's like, it's out of a book. I want to get back to the topic of your greatness. Okay. Do I have permission to do this? I can never talk about that enough. So I was bringing up the Jackie O bit because it seems to me that almost unlike any other comic, you have what I could really only describe as a kind of Talmudic approach to humor. It's not about the punchline. It's about the sort of like the process of getting through the punchline and the commentary on the process. And then seven diversions that in of themselves are brilliant punchline before you get to this punchline. And then you pull back and you have this feeling that, that you've just looked at a small world of complete mad and hilarious wisdom. How do you build that? Where do you get to that? Because really, I can't think of anyone else who does it quite this way. See, now hearing that, I felt like you're the rabbi standing over my casket going, <laughs> he was a great comedian. He was one of the <laughs> comedian's comedian. 
We will miss him always. He was a fine man and a good man. Well, it's it's so funny to talk about comedy. It it becomes so unfunny, right? And and the funny thing about it is, if I knew how to answer that question, I'd have ten times the material, a thousand <laughs> times the material I'd have now, because I'd know. Oh, I go from here to here, and I don't know. It's just the way my brain works. I'm going to attempt an answer apropos of the way your brain works and apropos your incredible podcast, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. So if you needed superlatives, it's right there in, in the title. I was listening to an episode, I think a few months back now, it was Father's Day, I believe. And you had Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon's sons both on the show. And all of a sudden, apropos of some very random name reference that someone threw out, you broke into an impersonation, like a few lines from the movie Charade. Yes. It seems like your love for the work of making art, of making movies, of making comedy, of making albums is boundless. It's funny because sometimes we'll have a hard time getting a guest on because I think they think I'm just going to like rip them apart on the air. But it's like, you know, I have this love for old Hollywood, particularly old show business. And it took us years to get John Davidson on the show. And I think he was scared of it. And then he went on and, and had a great time. So, yeah, it's it's uh, I do have this love for the creative process of show business and everything. And also the respect for, for those who came before you. I mean, so many of your guests are delightfully old. Well, uh, one tweet I got, because we've had people who, a number of guests in their 90s, and one guy tweeted after one of those guests, he tweeted, your show proves once again that you don't have to worry about your 80s and 90s. <laughs> and I thought that was it. It's like, remember when there would be shows like The Love Boat and Fantasy Island, there'd be people popping up that you know, you thought were dead and they'd be popping up on the show and you go, oh, they're just as good as they ever were. Oh, Ernest Borgnine. Look at him. He's so funny still. Yeah. It's interesting that you should say this because I, I was having dinner last week with a friend who's been involved with Saturday Night Live for a very long time and I asked him, you know, what has changed about Saturday Night Live over the years? And he said, well, one thing that changed is that the comedians who were on the show used to obsess about everything that came before them. And he said, a lot of the performers today are kind of oblivious. Uh, you know, they're aware that there was a Belushi or an Aykroyd or, or a Chevy Chase or a Bill Murray, but they don't have the same kind of deep reverence that strikes me again as very Jewish that you have for everything that came before you. Do you agree with that? Do you see comedy kind of abandoning its roots? Old culture is now abandoning its roots. It's like sometimes I'll read an article about a movie or about an actor and I'll go, wow, this person doesn't know what happened before. It's kind of like teaching American history and not mentioning George Washington or Abe Lincoln. You know, it's like, oh, who are they? And so I, I do feel that way. And it's like, I remember when uh, they did a reboot of The Wolfman and they said in the movie, they should have had it where he hates turning into a wolf and he wants to find a cure. And they said, like the Incredible Hulk. And I thought, no, like the Wolfman. 
<laughs> so I wonder how much of that is tied to like this idea of, you know, you mentioned the internet earlier, like, I feel like my attention span is like completely shot. Like I, it kind of makes sense where if you're like watching TikToks and Vines and all these videos, like you actually lose the context entirely. And that's why people don't know what came before and, or even really know to care. I'm the same way. I mean, I used to read back when they had stuff on paper. I mean, that seems like such an old concept. But I used to read. I could read, you know, novels, entire books. And now, I mean, I have a hard time getting through an entire paragraph. I think it's amazing. Like when you'll talk to people and you'll say like Groucho Marx and they have no idea who that is. Or you'll mention like Humphrey Bogart and they don't know. I'm sure if you got a hundred people now and said Burt Reynolds, they would know who you were talking about. Okay, so we don't read novels. We are all on the phone. But that does open up a host of new opportunities, one of which we have utilized here on the show for our special book episode last year. It's a wonderful service called Cameo in which one could pay uh, beloved celebrities like yourself to say pretty much whatever they want. Is this a delight? Is this like just a complete head trip for you? Yeah, it's surprising. Because when I first heard of it, I thought this is... Another one of these things that lasts for about a week and the whole company falls apart. But yeah, I got on it. And if you want a message from me, you go to cameo.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. I have to say, I'm on your Cameo page and there's a bunch of images of like the videos you've done. And you're wearing the same shirt you're wearing now. So did you do those like today or is this a performing shirt? <laughs> I have a habit of wearing like the same shirts over and over and over. I may wash them in between, but I'll wear them. Sometimes I'll get a tweet on Cameo where they'll go, oh, I think you changed your shirt. Like, who has money for more shirts? One of my Jerry Seinfeld? Come yeah. on. <laughs> so what are some of the things that people ask you to say or like things you've been surprised by? Because they basically tell you what to say to like their friend whose birthday it is who loves you, right? Yeah, they they want people. Some they want attack. Some it's happy birthday. Some happy graduation. Sometimes it's scary because they'll say, oh, tell Bob I'm going to kill him. <laughs> And you go, oh, that's probably their friends. And, the, and then you go, oh, what if he actually does kill him? And then I think about myself and I think, oh, on the news, they say, and Gilbert Gottfried was involved in this murder. I will say you have a review on your page from yesterday and someone gave you five stars and said, I asked for disgusting and I got disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when I was in the aristocrats, one review I got that said under the uh, hundred plus comedians in the movie, no one is more disgusting than Gilbert Gottfried. And I took that as quite high praise. I 100 percent support that opinion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, something else, because you were mentioning before about, you know, about not remembering and all that. On the podcast, when I first started doing it, I thought, well, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be talking about old show business. People are not going to know who these people are and they won't listen. They won't care. And I love when I'll get like messages from people where they said, 
I had no idea who that person was, and I had no idea who you were talking about, so I've been looking it up. That's the best praise ever. I mean, that's like, uh, it's a fun homework assignment. Well, you know, as, as Jews have been reminding the world for a bit now, a culture that doesn't remember its heritage is not really a culture. So speaking of Jews, Stephanie. <laughs> That's a good segue. Speaking of, I mean, look, it could be anything. Um, in the notes that our producers prepared for this, one of the lines says, he has said he did not have a bar mitzvah. That's right. Yeah, I'm a bad Jew. It's weird. I feel like being a Jew, I don't feel like you have to have a bar mitzvah or study or anything. You just know you're a Jew. You just know being a Jew, you could get beaten up. Being a Jew, you could get killed. I said to someone, I said, I'm a Jew, not because I, I, can, I can't speak Yiddish, I can't speak Hebrew. I've never been bar mitzvah. But I know if the Nazis came back, I would be on the train with everyone else. And someone described me as a boxcar Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I guess that's what I am. Besides, you know, uh, bar and bat mitzvahs could be pretty dangerous. I read in the papers not long ago that your family had, ah, yes. a, had a bat mitzvah that was quite eventful. Yeah. One of the women relatives there, who was in her later years, didn't quite understand how Zoom works and thought she was off the air. And so in front of like a thousand relatives and friends, she took all her clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> to take a shower. <laughs> and and people were trying to get in touch with her in a panic. Going, no, no, we could see you. We could see you. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Please tell me that at the end of this, he said, what's the name of this act? The Aristocrats. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Gilbert Gottfried, our Jew of the Week, a national comic treasure Thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, thank you. This was fun. And this was fun. We didn't have to pay you to say all these things to us. We appreciate it. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I'm going on Cameo right now and asking, be extra disgusting. I'm, I just, I can't wait to see what okay. comes out. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. First, hello, host of the preeminent Jewish podcast. I'm writing in regard to last week's conversation with Professor Lila Corwin Berman. I've held a number of posts in various Jewish nonprofits. And as someone who sees where the money goes and how the kosher sausage gets made, decisions get made with an array of variables. Jewish community funds are shrinking as younger donors are focused on designated giving. Endowments keep the lights on when variable dollars can be used for innovation. It's easy to throw stones. It's hard to build a house. Keep up the good work. And please write another book. For the first year of her life, I read my daughter a few pages from the newest Jewish encyclopedia every Shabbos. We moved on to Rabbi Sachs's leadership book, Throw Us a Bone for Next Year. Yours, Mark Prime. I love that this guy was reading his newborn, the newest Jewish encyclopedia. That's... It's never too early. Never too early. We want Why them not listening look? in utero and reading in that first year. That's really important. Exactly. How else are you going to win the Nobel Prize? Dear Unorthodox, I'm lying in bed feeling absolutely rotten with COVID, and I want y'all to know that this week's banter is bringing a great deal of cheer to my sickbed. Thanks, Gwen. Gwen, we are Jewish responders to COVID. Thank, we didn't know that, but thank you. We are happy to play our part. And we hope that by the time you hear this letter read on the air, you're already feeling better. Chicken soup is on its way. Last week, we read the letter of Joseph Mineo, who wrote to say that he is about to face his bestin, and he wants to pick himself a nice uh, Hebrew name. And Joseph was sort of kind of out of the running. Uh, and, and we suggested a host of names, including Nachshon. And so here is what he writes on Facebook. Thank you, everyone, for the wonderful suggestions on this thread. Because, of course, the J. Crew stepped right up and suggested all kinds of amazing, amazing names. And thanks to Mark, Stephanie, and Liel for the great suggestions. Nachshon actually sounds great to me. And though I've been hesitant to put another Joseph in my name, I think Nachshon Yosef would be a good way to preserve the past while honoring the new. Thank you again. And thank you, Nachshon Yosef, and welcome home. I love that. And now to the voicemail. One of our callers had more on Mayim Bialik criticizing our pronunciation of Mazel Tov. Hi, this is Evelyn Lerner-Grossman. I'm calling from Florida. I am a speech therapist as well as a dialect coach. So I was very entertained listening to your thought about Mazel Tov. Okay, so here's the deal. 
when you're saying mazel tov, which is what I heard before, the tov is like the ah sound um, in the word lava. However, the Eastern European way, which is the way that Stephanie was singing it in the song from Fiddler, a blessing on your head, mazel tov, mazel tov. Okay, that's the uh sound for the O, which rhymes with love. And that is the way. So the mazel tov, which my Bialik, that rhymes with lava, said it was unusual. Yes, I do agree with that. And the Eastern European way, as well as the way that we've usually heard it used, as far as I know, would be the uh sound as in love. Mazel tov to you, dear listener, for setting us straight. And finally, going back to Sukkot, we get this call. We had the discussion about uh, what to do with an esrog. Do you pickle it? Do you cure it? Do you ferment it? As ever, members of the J. Crew to the rescue. Hi, my name is Shalom. I'm calling from Muncie, New York. With the esrog, what we do is a lot of Hasidish uh, places, you make something called esrog angemach. It's a tough word, angemach. And you soak the esrog for a certain amount of days and basically end up cooking the esrog like seven times, dumping the water to get the bitterness out. Then you cook it the final time, sliced up with quince apples and tons of sugar, and you put it into cans, you know, the jam kind of cans, and then you keep it until Hamashish of the Shvat, and that's when you eat it. That's so interesting. I did not know that. Our dear friend from Muncie, thank you for giving us the recipe for what to do with an Esra, Hasidish style. Uh, Leo, what what was the date that he said you keep it until when? Isn't that like a number? Hamashish Shvat? Hamashish Shvat, yeah, but why, but why the fifth day of Shvat? Uh, I'm... This is news to me. I I would love to know more about the 5th of Shvat. So this poses another question to the J. Crew, which is we get this caller from Muncie who says, you you make this fabulous thing, you put it in jam jars, and you keep it until the 5th of Shvat. We have no idea why that would be the day on which you would then eat your esrog compote or jam. Could someone please inform us? Maybe one of our listeners from Muncie or Lakewood or one of the other uh, highly observant places where maybe they do this sort of thing. J. Crew, you are the best. Keep us in the loop. Think of us. Don't be a stranger, 914-570-4869, or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. J.Crew, if you are like me, and not like my friend and co-host Mark Oppenheimer, you know that science fiction and fantasy are some of the greatest genres in the world and that they give so much pleasure to readers, especially Jewish readers, maybe, who are already kind of obsessive, compulsive minds who like kind of intricate worlds with, you know, arcane languages and a lot of spells and awesome things. And if you are that person, like I am that person, you are going to love our guest today. He is Gabriel Savit, our friend Mark's former neighbor, a New York Times bestselling author and the author of a new Jewish YA novel, The Way Back, that is a National Book Award finalist and one of the finest, most thrilling books of this genre that I think I've ever read. Here's our conversation with Gabriel Savage.
We are so excited to have Gabriel Savit back on the podcast. You made your debut as a caller, right? You left a voice memo to bitch at us about something. You want to give us your history with the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm like a ground level podcast listener. I remember listening to the very first episode of Unorthodox on my roof when I was living in Brooklyn. And when I heard that rabbinic supervision had been provided by Toby Ziegler, I was like, yeah, no, I'm on board. So I've been listening the whole way down. So basically you're saying longtime listener, first time National Book Award nominee is the correct term. (laughs) I will accept that description. You know, by the way, that if you don't win the award, it is through no other reason but anti-Semitism. And I will riot in this. I will go to wherever, whoever, who gives out the National Book Awards? (laughs) The National Book Foundation. The National Book Foundation. Wherever they are, I will go and I will make them feel the brunt of my rage. I will be very pleased if it is my book that finally pushes Leah Leibovitz over the edge. <laughs> into, into complete violence. So you have this new novel out. It is a Jewish fantasy fable. I read it and was enchanted and thought it was beautiful. And not just because Gavi and his wife and now two daughters became very close friends of ours when they lived in New Haven a couple years ago. And we once recorded in his living room in New Haven, not just for that reason, but also because it's a a beautiful work of, of literature. And it makes me think like Jewish YA fantasy, a genre I didn't know existed. Did you create it or was it already out there? That's my question for you. I I don't know if we've got enough entries to qualify as a genre yet, but there certainly have been some other very notable and laudable entries in the sort of subgenre, let's call it. The Inquisitor's Tale by Adam Gidwitz is a great sort of Jewish YA fantasy. And Spinning Silver by Naaman Novik, also fantastic YA fantasy in the Jewish vein. So I, I certainly can't claim to founding anything, but I'm more than happy to join the ranks. So Gavi, I'm reading this book, The Way Back, and I want to give very little away, but the kind of feeling that I got when I read it is if J.R.R. Tolkien, instead of futzing around in Cambridge or Oxford or wherever he was with all the dons and all the kind of fusty, musty boringness, actually went to a proper yeshiva <laughs> and studied and then wrote his trilogy, it would read like that. It was like reading Lord of the Rings for Talmud literate people. So let's, let's start in the beginning. Give us a synopsis that won't spoil the fun. So The Way Back is a spooky Jewish fantasy for younger and older readers. It follows the adventures of two young Jewish people from a little shuttle that I invented called Tupic as they travel through what I call the far country, which is a term that I loosely translated from the Yiddish, Yenevelt, which means basically over there where all the demons and spirits and dead folks are. In the course of, of their adventures, they run up several times against the Malachamavis, the, the angel of death. They make deals and antipathies with many ancient demons. And by the time we get to the end, they're searching for the way back. Who we should say, one again of, of so many things that, that brought so much pleasure. The Angel of Death isn't some kind of like grim reaper, like bad guy you see in Scooby-Doo before it turns out to be, you know, Mr. Akmonic from across the street. He's kind of a schlepper. He's kind of a nebbishy, uching and oying, and like he loses stuff and he falters and fails and negotiates and philosophizes. He's very tired. Yeah, no. <laughs> if you were going to run into the Angel of Death, like in the back row at Shul, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the Angel that's of Death your guy. So let's talk about this character for a second. I know it's the most tiresome thing in the world to ask an author like, well, how'd you come up with this character? But like here you are actually grappling, you know, life itself. Tell me about this moment of like, okay, this this is my angel. This is this is my Malachamavas. Anyone who sets out to write a book about death either is wildly arrogant or has had a close brush with it themselves, or in my case, both. I met death for the first time in a close way actually the very end of my honeymoon 
my wife and I lost a child at 28 weeks gestation. And at that age, the child has to be born. So after that child was born, I had an opportunity to hold her. And I looked at her and I saw my face on her. And I started thinking about the way that everyone encounters death looking at their own face in one way or another. And so I thought about an angel of death who was everyone and no one, and what it would be like if I <laughs> had to walk around for the entire span of, of human history collecting dead people and how it would feel to me. And I thought, you know, I'd probably get pretty tired by the end of it. And, and also kind of resentful of, of the way that they, they always seem to run away. Like, what's wrong with you? Oh, definitely. What a job. Like, everyone hates you. You know what I mean? No one is ever happy to see you. No one's ever, like, offering you a little bit to eat, which is, like, the ultimate, ultimate disrespect in Judaism, right? Is that no one even asks if you're hungry. <laughs> So a couple of years back, I gave this talk to a very, very well-educated, Jewishly literate group of people. And my talk was about demons. And I kind of noticed that throughout the talk, people were looking at me like I was completely insane. And so I stopped midway and said, you guys realize that if you think these wise sage rabbis of the Talmud believed in God, by definition, a supernatural force, you do realize that it's not completely preposterous that these people would also very seriously believe that the world was inhabited by demons, right? And everyone kind of stopped and looked at me and was like, oh my God, yes, you're absolutely correct. So your book is sort of infused by characters for whom even before the demons appear and their first appearance in the form of a crow is... One of the funniest moments, right? Even before they actually appear, people are, are very sure that they exist. So first of all, I want to know, how, how do you feel personally about demons? And then how did this belief work its way into fictional realms? You know, this is a very good question that I did not anticipate answering when I wrote this book. And now it's getting asked more and more. How do I feel about demons? My answer is that it's never going to do anyone any good to deny the existence of demons, right? Like denying the existence of demons. <laughs> it's only going to upset the demons. them in. Exactly. So I, I stand at the side and respectfully acknowledge anyone who passes by is what I do. It's such a twisted take on Pascal's wager, right? Like you might as well believe in God because what's the downside? You're either right or you're wrong. You might as well believe in demons because if not, they will fuck your shit up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know... As Liel, I'm sure, knows, having gotten through much more than Brachot at this point uh, in, in the Dafyomi, in Brachot, there's all sorts of references to the demons, great references. Specifically, like a particular sage says that everyone has a thousand demons on his left and 10,000 on his right. There's this crazy, amazing, like, formula for a magical spell to see demons that involves burning the afterbirth of a firstborn black cat of a firstborn black cat and like putting it in your eyes it's so wild it's all over Talmud. it's all over jewish tradition everywhere and i think one of the things that's incredible is there's this like there's this notion in the ether that fantasy is in some ways very goyish which is very bizarre to me because if you go back and look at yiddish literature Almost all of it is in some way fantastical. If you look at their nister, you look at parrots, you look at singer, there's magicians and demons all over the place. You know, I feel like in some ways, casting a popular fantasy in, in a Jewish space, and particularly an Ashkenazi Jewish space, which is the brand of Judaism that I come from and the one that has arguably been most disrupted over the course of the 20th century, and most of its mimetic tradition been lost. It feels like a, a reclaiming of a, of a legacy rather than like an invention. Well, I was going to ask about that because as somebody who is outside of the fantasy and sci-fi world, you know, who, who didn't take that boat out, but stood on the shore and waved and wished you well, I always did 
perceive not so much sci-fi, where of course Isaac Asimov is this towering figure, but fantasy literature in particular as very goyish. Why? Because of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, both of whom were in, I mean, Lewis being a very serious Christian who wrote Christian apologetics and Tolkien being kind of so much a creature of Christendom in his way. And is it just because of those two dudes? But also it's not. As I stand on one foot, like a certain kind of Christian really loves fantasy lit. Oh man, but there absolutely is a certain brand of Jew who loves fantasy lit. Of religious Jew? Of like Jewy Jew? Absolutely. Nerdy modern Orthodox folks, my friend. Have we met? Mark, hi. You're surrounded. <laughs> We're on either side of you right now. Yeah. <laughs> and why isn't why aren't we producing more books like yours as a, a people who do, you know, write more than we should, perhaps? It's definitely the case that in English language fantasy, we are dominated by Brits, which is not surprising. If you look, I mean, even before Tolkien and Lewis and Rowling, who are sort of, you'll excuse the expression, the Holy Trinity at this point. William Morris wrote Anglo-Saxon fantasies. George MacDonald was a big guy early in the days. And I think there's a sense of Englishness that infuses popular fantasy that seems at odds with Jewishness. But I don't think it is. I mean, even if you go back into the historical record that is non-fantastical, I think you find that a lot of the sense of magic in the West actually comes from encounters with Judaism from a Christian perspective. I mean, there's a reason there's a big explosion in thought and pursuit of magic around the advent of movable type. People were able to read in easier ways about traditions that were necessarily hidden from them earlier in European history. And many of those traditions, like Kabbalah, inspired a lot of these sort of esoteric magical traditions of modernity in the West. So there's Judaism like very deep in Western magic to begin with. And then in Western fantasy literature, though you are correct that its prime exponents are in some ways very, very Christian and Anglo. Firstly, Tolkien has Jews in Middle-earth. His dwarves are problematically in some ways and wonderfully in others, very clearly Jewish. In fact, the more devoted readers out there in Orthodox land may remember that Gimli's battle cry at the Battle of the Hornburg is Baruch Chazad Chazad Imenu, which is like directly Hebrew. <laughs> um, and, you know, C.S. Lewis had a from stepson, isn't that mm -hmm. right? Yes, he did. And certainly as an Oxford Don, C.S. Lewis, very well acquainted with Judaism. I think in certain ways, the Chronicles of Narnia hold a negative space for Judaism because they're derived, after all, from notions of Christianity, which you can't have Christianity without Judaism. I'm sorry to spoil that for everyone out there, but like one follows the other. And then thirdly, J.K. Rowling, that may be the most Jewish of the major British fantasies, because in some ways it's about a diaspora culture that exists underneath the major culture. We have our own secret little schools where we dress strangely and grow our beards and learn ancient knowledge in a foreign language. I think you could write a fantastic alternate version of Harry Potter, where instead of getting a letter from Hogwarts University, it gets a letter from Yeshiva University. It's basically the same story. <laughs> you get to move up to, up to Washington Heights. <laughs> exactly. Williamsburg is Hogsmeade. It's great. I think so much of the world of Jewish letters, especially in America, especially in the last 60 years, or so years has been focused around this kind of status-seeking, well, if I could write, I will write, quote-unquote, fine literature, and I'll be embraced by this Goetia establishment, and I will be the talk of the town and write for the New Yorker. The thing that delighted me so much, Gabby, like, to open a book and from the very first page see that, A, it's incredibly well-written, 
and B, that it, it goes all out with our tradition, with our stories, with our magic, both figuratively and literally, it just makes the heart sing. Because where has that been? Where have you been? Why did it take Gavi to remind all of us how to write like Jews again? Oh, that's very kind of you. Very kind of you. I mean, I think you're right, though, that we forget the shortness of history in, in certain ways. A lot of our grandparents were the immigrant generation. And when you're coming to a new country and learning a new language and setting up your little shingle as a writer, you know, you, you write aspirationally as, as, as someone who's like trying to, to join the mainstream, not often about where you came from. And so really, we're, we're kind of two generations away from the last great Jewish migration to the United States of America. So it's not surprising to me that our stories of our lives and our, uh, our existences in the old country are starting to bubble up more now. But one of the things that's also going on is you are somebody who grew up in, in a modern Orthodox community and you got a pretty strong Jewish education yourself and you know this stuff. In other words, you can reclaim, not that there's anything wrong with culturally Jewish writing. I mean, some of my favorite authors, if Philip Roth scarcely has any Jewish observance in his books. He's very Jewy, a lot of cultural Judaism, a lot of Jewish ideas for sure, but almost no actual Jewish practice. And that's fine. That's what he does. You know, Cynthia Ozick, a little more Jewish legends, Jewish practice, Bernard Malaman, a little more. Bellow, almost no Jewish observance. A lot of our writers, as you say, have not only not been interested in going into Jewish observance or legends or texts because they're trying to claim what they see as an American tradition, but a lot of them didn't have the Jewish learning to do it. I wonder how peopled, how serried the community of Jewishly knowledgeable people who write in English is, who want to write literature accessible to secular people, but are drawing on those Jewish wellsprings. Like, you're almost a unicorn in that sense. <laughs> well, I'll be I'll be a happy unicorn then. You're hitting on something that I'm certainly very focused on. It was important to me that the book feel authentically and thoroughly Jewish to people with strong Jewish education, but also fully accessible to people who don't have that education, whether they be Jews or not. And I hope that that, that has been accomplished. I think that it has. The model in that regard is actually Chaim Potek, mm. who, I mean, you can read The Chosen and not know anything about Frumkite and still come away knowing what's happened. Totally. So that was kind of the goal there. But I think you also hit on something, Mark, that's interesting and kind of emergent. I, like many other young Jews, am growing pretty tired of denominational distinction because I think it tends to be more limiting than it is enfranchising. And I say this as someone who believes very strongly in the sort of goals of the classical conservative Jewish movement. But I think what's really important is that we're seeing a trend towards the idea that tradition is not something that is solely the province of the traditionally observant. You're seeing a lot more people in liberal Judaism who might be more apt to write for secular audiences or to engage with secular culture, who are looking at our traditions and our history and our stories and saying, well, I don't have to keep all 613 mitzvahs to like feel ownership of this, which I think is very, very good and very laudable. And I hope that more people continue to do that because it's a false dichotomy, right? Like you don't have to wear tzitzis to read their nister. Or to do a page a day of Talmud. Absolutely. Right. But all of us, whether we wear tzitzis or not, should absolutely avoid going into certain parts of the forest after dark because that's where the demons live. Absolutely. We learn that both in Talmud and also in fairy stories from the Great British Isles. It so delighted me because when we were growing up, anytime we visited the cemetery, it was very important to stop in one and preferably two places before you went home to basically shake off death. And and when you have the thing that the, the house, I believe of Zalman, right, has the, the little sink outside so you could wash death off because you're too close to the cemetery. It's like, that makes 
absolutely perfect. So this is exactly how I grew up. This is it. It was a fun little trick putting the baker's house right next to the cemetery because mm-hmm. those are the two like primary hand washings that you right. have in traditional observance, right? It's washing before bread and washing after coming out of a cemetery. So it's like kind of a, a neat little confluence there. But yeah, no, this is actually something that I that I ran into a lot because as much as the book's about demons, it's also about death. And I spent a lot of time in various cemeteries thinking and walking my dog while I was working on this book. And I sort of had to decide for myself in the Jewish magical tradition, you want to stay on the path. You certainly don't want to eat anything while you're in the cemetery. And when you come out, you want to wash your hands. Are those rules that I want to observe as I'm writing this book, which is in a sort of figurative sense, digging my hands into cemetery soil? Or is it in fact wrong to distance myself from the cemetery soil under these circumstances? And you may be surprised to learn that I never came up with an answer. (laughs) Gavriel Savitt, the novel is The Way Back. It was published this week. What's the pub date? Rosh Chodesh Kislev, November 17th. November 17th, already available on all sorts of websites. Uh, If you don't want to use the big A to Z website, the big Amazon, bookshop.org is a nonprofit site that funnels money to the local bookseller of your choice. One third of all profits go to local booksellers. So that's one to use, bookshop.org. Gabriel Savitt, author of The Way Back, nominee for the National Book Award. Happy Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Happy 5781. Thanks for being our Jew of the Week. It was an absolute pleasure. Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov this week? I'm inspired by producer Josh Cross's background this week, and I wish to uh, wish a very hearty mazel tov to Steve Eliezer Benzion HaKohen Shlomo HaGadol Cohen for purchasing these here New York Mets. Uh, I cannot wait for a whole new round of crushed hopes, dashed, uh, you know, dreams, and just new ways to to trample on our hearts. So welcome to our nightmares, and can't wait to see what kind of damage you do. Stephanie Butnick, a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov thank you to Susan Dennison, who's a listener of our show. And she made us these beautiful, like, custom book plates that say our names and say unorthodox. And there are things we can sign and put into books that people buy. And so you guys will be seeing them soon when I do that thing where I FedEx you things and you have to FedEx them to each other and then FedEx back to me, uh, which is the world's worst game of telephone. Um, But Susan, thank you so much for doing that. It was so sweet of you. And we're really excited about it. My mazel tov is to the novelist and memoirist Martin Amos. I don't know the guy. But he has a new book out called Inside Story, which is called a novel, but it's really a memoir. And he talks a lot about the Jews. This is a guy who is himself Anglo-Welsh, Protestant, not at all Jewish. He's married to uh, a woman who is uh, half Uruguayan, half uh, Ashkenazi Jewish. And he has two young daughters who are uh, matrilineally Jewish, and they happen to refer to their daughters as the Jews, or at least the character in this novel does, and you think it's Martin Amos. But the book is such a so wonderful... Like, Lock the Jews in the room. He, he do. The they, Jews don't get dinner. To, the Jews are misbehaving again. It's exactly right. The Jews could do good stuff, too. Like, the Jews yeah, did so great in their music recital. Yeah, they really did a good job cleaning the dishes tonight. Yeah. Um, the Jews really know money. 
but he, and he loves, his favorite novelist is Saul Bellow, and he also loves Nabokov, who was married to a Jewish woman, a fact that excites him a lot. He's just a serious Judeophile, and the book is very, very Jewy, and I really would, uh, I hope to get him on the show, but I would really- I'm sorry, com- his favorite novelist is Saul Bellow, not, say, Kingsley Amos? Oh, definitely not. I mean, Kingsley <laughs> Amos is his favorite dad. No, Bellow and Nabokov, for sure. It's just a very Jewy book, and I just want to give him a mazel tov for really, I think, capturing something very special about our people. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Barbara Pinsner of Temple Hill of B'nai Torah in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. And we come to you yet again from the basement, closet, and study studios of Tablet in the Diaspora. Shalom, friends. Mark's Place, where education happens. Mark's Place, the basement in that guy's house in town. That's kind of creepy. Mark's Place, it's a white van with no windows. (laughs) Liel's room, where education is Talmud, the New York Mets, and firing range. Yeah.